Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Just before we recorded this podcast, in mid-January, news broke in the UK that MI5, the Domestic Security Service, had designated Christine Lee, a UK-based lawyer of Chinese origin, as a Chinese agent of influence who appeared to be targeting parliamentarians. So it's very timely that we have the chance to speak to Joanna Chu, who's an internationally recognised authority on China, whose work has appeared in a variety of high-profile publications around the world. Joanna is based in Canada, where she covers China-related topics for the Toronto Star, and she is recently the publisher of China Unbound, A New World Disorder, a book that examines China as a superpower and the way it acts in order to get its way around the world. So, Joanna, welcome to The Bunker. Hey, Arthur. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, this comes at a time when, unusually perhaps, the British public has some awareness of the fact that China seeks to influence uh, British politics, which is an issue that is probably normally ignored. So how normal or abnormal is this kind of case from your perspective as someone who looks at how China behaves internationally? Um, so I'm also born in Hong Kong, uh, but raised in Canada. I'm a Canadian citizen. And I kind of grew up in, you know, late 80s, 90s, uh, in Chinese Canadian communities, where even back then, um, people in a community were talking about ways that the Chinese government seemed to be trying to meddle and interfere and try to do things like stifle criticism from foreigners overseas, including among recent immigrants. Um, so these things were well known in my community, but it took a long time for the wider uh, communities around the world, particularly in Western countries, to clue in that these activities were happening. In my book, I actually reported on the ground around the world uh, before uh, the pandemic hit to kind of analyze each country's experiences. And I saw a lot of similar threads. Um, again, because early targets of uh, Beijing's foreign interference influence were people of Chinese descent, I think that made it uh, seem like more of a niche problem that is not going to affect uh, the wider you know, the running of governments and democracy around the world. Um, and a lot of the warnings that came from Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadians, uh, people of Chinese descent in the UK. I think it really, I spoke with a lot of people who are now like in their 50s and 60s, and they are frustrated because now people seem to be paying attention, but they had been warning about um, things like the United Front Work Department for decades, uh, kind of falling on deaf ears. In the UK, uh, some proposal to look at kind of uh, national security concerns around uh, foreign interference was only proposed um, you know, less than a year ago. So it's been really slow. Um, so that's why the subtitle of my book a new world disorder is not referring uh, solely at Beijing's actions, um, but kind of the complicity, uh, kind of the willful ignorance of the West um, to allow this kind of toxic situation to happen. Yeah. So one of the things you talked about is this United Front Work Department. And, and I think it'd be worth sort of talking a bit more about that, because in the book, you talk about it, it sounds like the stuff of spy novels. And it does, because it's this, this perhaps slightly kind of shadowy agency, which in some respects carries out normal kind of cultural missions that you might expect any country to do, but it also carries out work that is more connected with the activities of a secret police. So could you sort of 
explain to a listener who's not familiar, well, what is this thing and what, what's it for? It's actually been so well established now that people are talking about it, um, but it has been operating for decades. Basically, since the Chinese Communist Party uh, came to power, it had this idea that it was important to recruit non uh, CCP members to work for Beijing's interests. So this happens by both trying to attract um, loyalty and friendship, as well as you know working with China's secret police department to use more harsh tactics. Uh, it's kind of two sides of the coin. So things like political donations to politicians, that's one side of the coin of United Front work, using flattery uh, to get politicians around the world on board. On the other side of the coin, usually it's people who are journalists uh, or, you know, prominent people in their communities or even people in lower positions that Beijing still feels are worth targeting. Um, in my research, I spoke with a city councillor in Canada. He said in his ward, cows outnumber people. Literally, his town has 500 people <laughs> and it's a rural farming op- uh, community. And he was offered an all-paid lavish trip to China when he was running for city council to learn about, you know, China's investment schemes and what they could offer Canada. But he knew about, you know, this context of how the United Front works. So he said no. But a lot of people don't know about this. There's no mandatory training uh, anywhere that I, you know, examined in my case studies of um, people in positions of influence from small towns to the federal level on how China's unique style of foreign influence works. I think um, a lot of these things aren't illegal in many countries because they operate in these gray areas um, where, yeah. again, a lot of governments don't have legislation. Uh, Australia was um, left kind of red-faced when one of its senators uh, was found, Sam Dasiari, I profile in the book, to receive a lot of different payments um, offering these political donations, um, even paying for the senator's legal bills. Um, again, giving him trips to China. So it's not just soft power, but it's really targeted, um, you know, a term for China's particular brand of influence has been coined uh, called sharp power. So Christine Lee, as an example, if, you know, she's found to have done all the things that she's accused of, um, she's not a politician. She's a lawyer. Yeah. You know, she was listed as a law firm that was deeply vetted and recommended by the UK government. So that's kind of how the United Front works. It works with people to try to advance Beijing's goals around the world. So if we if we look at a bit about what China is doing further afield, I mean, your book takes uh, various case studies. Uh, and, and some of these countries, uh, particularly, you know, Canada, a, a, a notable case was the controversy around uh, Meng Wanzhou, who is was is the CFO of Huawei, China's uh, telecoms company, uh, and sh- and she was put under arrest in Canada, and then in a kind of tit for tat uh, gesture, there were two guys called Mike who were Canadians arrested in in China. Now, one of the interesting questions there is the degree to which large Chinese, ostensibly private enterprises such as Huawei are in fact in some way acting on behalf of and are treated by the Chinese government as part of the Chinese state. So how would you 
how how would you sort of characterize mm-hmm. that situation? How should we view Huawei? Yeah. Is it just an extension of mm-hmm. China's intelligence services, or is it something more mm-hmm. complicated? It is very complicated. And you know, when I was working in Beijing as a reporter, um, to have a break from the more depressing political and human rights stories, I would cover the tech sector. I would reach out to Chinese entrepreneurs. Yeah. I would go to these um, factories and uh, kind of these innovation centers, uh, particularly in the South, where it's just so dynamic and you see like little kids like learning to like make robots and things like that. And, and that's kind of the vibe where everyone wants to make something new. They want to invent the next big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very dynamic and people in the tech sector tend to be people who are the most kind of socially progressive, like very LGBT friendly, um, cell phone companies in China, like they have like uh, LGBT friendly and pro uh, LGBT ads. So that's kind of like a different side of China a lot of people don't see. But then I, you know, you feel sympathy for anyone trying to operate in the Chinese legal system because companies have such like a heavy set of legal responsibilities, such as tech companies working on the internet to be responsible for censoring their platforms. Um, if they don't censor as uh, the Chinese government wants, they can be taken offline. So China has designed their legislation to make it companies' responsibility to actually com- be complicit in the very heavy censorship regime. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very, I talked to Baidu, um, the Google of China, and to them it's like, they feel like the rest of the world doesn't really know to bind they're in. Um, Google can decide to leave China, which it did because it didn't want to censor. Um, but as a Chinese company where your market is China, um, they feel they, they have no choice to but to comply. So that's how we should kind of look at the situation Huawei is in. Um, so the question of Huawei, as, as well as with other uh, internet companies, uh, telecom companies, companies uh, based in authoritarian countries is not if you can find evidence of them currently spying, but in the future, could they be compelled to hand over sensitive data to their respective governments? So it's interesting because um, when Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Vancouver, by reacting the way uh, Beijing did by taking two Canadian men hostage, um, making it very obvious that they were doing so undermines Huawei's claim that it's independent of the Chinese government because the Chinese government seemed to have, you know, pull out all the stops to try to get this woman free. Yeah. You know, again, part of the book's commentary analysis is what Western countries have or haven't done. Yeah. And Canada still hasn't made a decision on 5G and Huawei. And the UK, um, you know, Boris Johnson, he said he would be pro-China, like this kind of, shift in uh, people in the yep. UK being more concerned is very, very recent. Oh, definitely. At top leadership uh, circles for a long, long time, including Australia, Canada, everywhere, um, including the US. Uh, basically, the idea was it was important to expand 
trade and um, economic ties with China as much as possible. And there was kind of to justify, you know, this singular focus, there was this myth promoted by Bill Clinton, promoted by Angela Merkel, um, that with a trade contact with the world, China would naturally become more liberal. Um, but that was never a commitment Beijing made. Um, I, I really think it was kind of this narrative that Western leaders made to justify um, focusing so much on uh, expanding its economic opportunities with China at the expense of overlooking um, some of the concerns of, you know, working with an authoritarian power that's in a way very almost paranoid about how it's viewed around the world. I interviewed teenagers in my book who have been targeted by the Chinese government internationally for things they said online. Um, that's really been overlooked Um I myself and others have tried to report different kind of strange behavior um, to local police. And I haven't found one case where police actually responded and said, I will take down your report and we will investigate this. They said I would have to be in imminent danger for a court to approve a basic tracking of an IP address. Someone would have to be in my front lawn, like with a machete. So I guess um, we've allowed a lot of things to happen. As you talk about individuals are intimidated and bullied by by aspects of the Chinese machine. Uh, we haven't really touched on universities, but we know that that's mm-hmm. an area where there's a lot of effort is made by, and of course you cover it extensively in your book. Um, how have Western governments kind of enabled this? And, and what do you think they should do differently in the future? Mm-hmm. For some reason, people in power around the world felt that it was their responsibility to... Um, expand, you know, business opportunities for their constituents, um, you know, trade deals, investment deals as much as possible. And often the government advisors in these cases are people, again, with vested interests, people who do business with China, who want to see a positive environment for this business to continue. Um, People um, who might have more kind of complicated things to raise about China's growing power and influence around the world, you know, haven't traditionally been invited into these spaces to be government policy advisors. Like, it's pretty obvious why the political dimensions of what Beijing is doing has been um, unknown for so long, because people who were working on these issues or were directly affected by these issues were kind of systematically discriminated against. And these things are not in the past. My book profiles uh, countries like Greece and Italy and Turkey, um, where the public opinion has not shifted as much as it had recently in the UK, um, where there's kind of this uh, atmosphere of gratitude for their country's um, kind of investment deals and relations with China. Um, In Italy, the previous government made it seem like um, for all of its kind of election promises to, uh, you know, address the country's mounting debt uh, and really, you know, run down infrastructure that basically Beijing will be the answer. Yeah. You know, I traveled, I kind of traced the footsteps of Xi Jinping's uh, 2019 trip to Italy. And in places where he visited, there were, there was so much like unfounded optimism about Chinese investment um, that literally there were like media articles about how China investors would take over this factory or take over this port. But then I did some fact checking. I spoke actually with the mayors of these different places where, you know, all these huge Chinese investments take place. And often it was just like all hot air. Um, It was these deals weren't even going to take place. Like people get so excited about China as basically a huge source 
of funding <laughs> or a huge potential market yeah. for foreign businesses who just the idea i think the myth is that it's 1.4 billion people all you do you just like get into china you sell something and then you just become rich overnight <laughs> people really oversimplify it um so you know those kind of rose colored glasses um is still a reality in many countries um and structurally you would think that with all of these um media headlines about you know chinese interference agents united front that there would be more funding for people to learn Mandarin, um, to study Chinese history or Chinese politics in universities, yeah. but actually around, around the world, either these faculties never existed or, or they're being kind of like shrinking or being shut down. And that kind of things, it's because it's complicated, that it's hard for people to wrap their minds around and to craft legislation around um, because it it's so, it's a wide uh, umbrella of different activities. Um, so it's important that, again, any measures um, apply uh, not just to China, but around the world. So, you know, politicians should be reporting, you know, meetings and um, donations they're receiving um, from different entities that might have links to other states. Um, and in Australia, uh, they have, you know, introduced a raft of anti-foreign interference legislation, which is kind of interesting to study um, because it doesn't just apply to China, which I think is important. It's important that these measures apply to any, you know, foreign state actor or someone working allegedly on behalf of a foreign state, because when it's only kind of targeted at China, um, you're leaving yourself again open to similar activities from other countries. <laughs> so, and you're also opening up to criticism, um, I think in some ways founded from Beijing, where this is, you know, all kind of focused on China. And, you know, a lot of Chinese people living in China feel that there's so much attention um, on what China's doing that often it gets whipped up into this kind of hysteria where they feel, you know, they suffer. Like when they travel around the world as Chinese people, they're treated with hostility. So what is the appropriate response? Because I guess uh, one of the things we kind of struggle with is is that there does seem to be a, a common factor of countries not really succeeding in protecting their own democracy uh, in relation mm-hmm. to China. Mm-hmm. But do we just need to be much more confrontational, much more aggressive with China, or is it more complicated than that? It's such a fine line because what people in this space worry about is, you know, we're, we're talking about human rights. We're doing research on what the United Front is doing. But sometimes instead of people looking hard at the issues and um, there's like a knee jerk reaction of, you know, almost like kind of battle cries. Like people want to literally, you know, start, uh, you know, a second Cold War of China. They want to talk about really like aggressive warmongering language. And I, I analyze this kind of uh, tendency, you know, during the Trump era and beyond to use like a lot of red scare, like communist yeah. scare language. And it just becomes ideological uh, rather than I think what the appropriate approach is to really try to be careful and meticulous about researching and understanding what is going on because it's complicated but you know the people who have been working and affected by these issues uh, instead of having their voices be marginalized and doubted um, they should be invited to provide information and they should 
But in order to do that, people need to feel safe. Like I said, like a lot of them have tried to go to police and some were basically laughed out of the station. So we're not providing these environments where people who know what's going on, who can contribute to this understanding of, you know, and ideas on how to respond, they don't feel comfortable speaking out. Actually, concrete actions are um, needed (laughs) to make people feel more safe uh, around the world. Um, I know that the UK realizes this. Um, I've had meetings um, with different uh, people who are in the know. Um, You know, they're becoming wise to these things. They're trying to get information from from people who might want to speak anonymously. Um, It's just, I think things are heading into a better direction. It's just very belated. It's very slow. Um, So there's an urgency right now to try to do things well. When people get really ideological and hyperbolic about it, um, it really just actually serves Beijing's interests. Uh, The CCP always says things like, there's so much racism and anti-Asian hate crimes around the world. Um, This is why um, you should basically don't even try to support your other governments, but, you know, be loyal to the motherland. Uh, We will support you. Um, And then this, this kind of leads to concerns about okay, this is how they recruit people to work in its interest. Um, so looking at how to talk about these issues without stoking further racism, xenophobia is actually urgent for even pragmatic reasons because this kind of environment is really, really uh, helpful for the Chinese government. Well, it's, it's that navigating that difficult territory between dealing appropriately with China but not falling into mm-hmm. a sort of uh, objectivization of people of Chinese descent, which Mm -hmm. appears to be almost at the heart of your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, I think, the solution. Like when you address that, um, more people who understand what's happening, who who reads Chinese and are able to just quickly, you know, understand what's going on, they're more likely to contribute to the solutions. Yeah. Well, Joanna, that's a great place to uh, stop this fascinating discussion. As I mentioned, your book, China Unbound, A New World Disorder, published by Hearst, came out late last year and is a fascinating, although sobering read. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Yeah, thanks so much for featuring my book. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the BunkerUp hashtag? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronovic and Jacob Archbold, Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer is Jacob Jarlick. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.